But uh, let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll talk about this book of Jeremiah uh, that we're entering into. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who, who cares, that uh, you're not a God who delights in judgment. You're not a God who uh, finds uh, encouragement in uh, bringing down a hammer on people, but that you are a God that are presented by this prophet that is sorrowful over those that will not repent, those that are stiff-necked and, and unrepentant, and uh, that uh, you do not delight in judgment. And so, Lord, we pray as we look at this prophet, his life that's just displayed, it's an open book uh, here for us to see. Uh, may we realize that even though you're a God that judges, it is that you do it, even though you're great in mercy and compassion, that you do it because of your holiness. And uh, it needs uh, to be displayed in the fact that you do judge sin. So, Lord, we love you. Thank you for allowing us to study your word and uh, to be able to read it. And uh, we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah. And uh, we will be stopping in a few passages this evening as we go through. But... uh, Looking at this prophet of Jeremiah, or a book of prophecy by Jeremiah, and its author is Jeremiah. So it is a uh, book written by the named author, and so that's pretty easy. But like last week, uh, we have to become familiar with the fact that Jeremiah and Isaiah and others were not the only prophets during their time period. It's not that when you open up your Bible and you go through and you suddenly get to the prophets, you go, okay, let's go Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. You know, that Hosea was the first prophet, and Joel, then Amos, and Obadiah, and it's in chronological order. They're not in chronological order as far as books. That Many of these men and their ministries overlapped. Uh, when you read Isaiah and Micah, they're saying some of the very same statements. And you're kind of going, okay, they're saying uh, similar things. And as you read some of the other prophets, they're saying the same thing. And uh, so when it comes to Jeremiah, he's a prophet that serves, as uh, far as we know, from 626 to 561. You say, why is that important? Well, you have three different uh, captivities for the city of Jerusalem that take place. You have one that happens in 605. That's the one that Daniel gets taken in. Uh, you have one in 597 that takes place. And then the final one where the actual destruction of Jerusalem takes place and the leveling of the city uh, by Nebuchadnezzar takes place in 586. Jeremiah is a prophet during all of them and all the transitions of kings because some of those captivities take place with the removal of a king and a setting of a king in place. Uh, So he's in a time period of great transition back and forth of what's going on in society. Uh, He lives during the reign of five kings in Judah. The kings are Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim. As you read through uh, the book, you'll find him named Eliakim. Uh, ironically, um, yeah, both of those names have names of God in them. Uh, Jehu is Jehovah and Eliah is God, and the man did not like what God had to say. Uh, Jehoiachin and Zedekiah. He's contemporary of the prophets of Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. And uh, so all of these men are ministering during the time frame while he's ministering 
And I will tell you this, that there are some people uh, that were familiar with his writings. You go, how do you know that? Daniel was familiar with his writings. Because when Daniel's praying to God, he reads Jeremiah's uh, statement of 70 years of captivity, and that's what compels him to pray. Because he's going, I got taken captive 605, we're really close to 70 years. And he starts praying uh, that the Lord would fulfill his word. Uh, So they are contemporaries of one another, uh, though in some cases they may never cross paths. Jeremiah and Daniel uh, probably never did. Ezekiel and Daniel uh, more than likely knew of each other if they crossed paths. Don't know, but they lived in the same region. So during his prophetic ministry, the Assyrian Empire collapsed, and so that left two major powers in play, Egypt and Babylon. And so if you look at a map, you have, and from your direction, you have Babylon up here, Egypt down here, and right in the center is Israel. Israel is a, if you've never looked at a map before, is in the central location between Asia, Europe, and uh, Africa. And so it's a very much a strategic location. But when it came to that map, Egypt and Babylon are fighting against each other. And it's at times where some of the kings are going, we like Egypt because they're closer to us. They seem to be stronger right now. And other times the kings are going, we like Babylon. Let's pay tribute to them. And they can't please either side. And, uh, but Egypt finally gets defeated and the Babylonians come to prominence. And so during Jeremiah's time, this is all the things that take place. It's a major uh, transformation of human history as far as the scale of what's going on. The theme of Jeremiah is just simply this, the judgment of the Lord. Last week in looking at Isaiah, we uh, were looking at that and just the, the good news that is there, but uh, we emphasize the servant of the Lord. Uh, that was uh, the theme that you see coming time and time again. In this book, you're just going to see judgment everywhere. And you're going to see a full display of the sorrow of Jeremiah when you get to his second book, which is Lamentations, which we will look at next week, uh, where he is just grieved by seeing the utter judgment that God lays out on the city of Jerusalem. The arrangement of this book, and let me just before I go any further on this, let you in on a secret. The book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order. So as you read through it, you'll hear him confronting kings and talking about certain events. And there are times where it's about time for the nation of Israel to be carried off into captivity completely, and then all of a sudden he has a king 20 years before that he's talking to. And uh, I, I don't have this listed, but you can probably call this up in, uh, online. In fact, I'm pretty sure you can. You can just type it in and say the chronological order of the book of Jeremiah, and there are people that will arrange it for you so that you can get the story in chronological order, the events that take place. But what Jeremiah is trying to do is not necessarily give you a chronology of his life and all the events that took place. He's taking themes and arranging the stories from his life and events of kings and confronting them and arranging the story that needs to get displayed. 
And so as you go through what we'll have as far as the arrangement, realize it's not in chronological order, and so sometimes you'll read about kings being carried off into captivity, and then later on you're reading about Jeremiah talking to that king, and you're going, hmm, how did that happen? Because it's not in chronological order. So don't let that uh, take you by surprise as you read through this book. Arrangement, uh, just as this, uh, the first chapter is Jeremiah's call. Uh, You find him uh, being called by the Lord in verses 1 through 19. Uh, This statement uh, in verse number 4. Get there myself on that. Jeremiah 1 and verse 4, it says this, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. These are verses that uh, people will use when they're defending the position of uh, pro-life. I mean, here God's got a plan for a baby in the womb before it's born. There's a plan for that uh, individual and that there is a, even a relationship. And he says, I've set you apart to be a prophet. Uh, you didn't know this, but from birth, I had a plan for you to be my prophet. And uh, so that challenge where Jeremiah is finding it hard at times, even that he's not... Um, really a a person to do this. Verse 7, Lord, uh, he says to the Lord, uh, or verse 6, Jeremiah responds, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. And the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go unto all that I send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. So he's kind of like a Moses to start off with. Moses not quite wanting to do this. He doesn't feel sufficient to the task. Jeremiah's got some elements of that in his calling. And the Lord has to give him multiple visions to just kind of help him understand that he is called. Chapters 2 through 6 is just, uh, as you go through, some early prophecies about judgment that are taking place, some of the early stories. Um, There are times where you begin to realize that you're dealing with an uh, unrepentant and hard-necked people, uh, and uh, you find this to be the case, a backsliding people, as it's uh, in in the translation that we have. Uh, They just will not turn, and so you begin to see that Jeremiah wasn't excited about going to the Israelites, but then you find out, well, I understand why. These are not people that are going, thank you for your message. Uh, You know, this is a, a message we really want. Uh, the temple sermon and other warnings. Um, this is a, a good passage just to remind us of in, in chapter 7. Uh, he makes this statement over and over again. He's preaching and he goes, there's some of you saying this, this, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And what was going on is that people were showing up in the temple on Saturday, the Sabbath day, and they would come in in the official ceremonies of worship And then they would go out and live their lives however they wanted to live them the the other six days. They would oppress the poor. They would go out and be immoral. They would go and worship other gods. They would do all these things. But they'd come back on the seventh day and they'd show up in the temple and go, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And what they were using the temple as was kind of a, uh, to use today's vernacular for it, a lucky charm of protection We've got the temple, it's here, it belongs to the Lord, he would never destroy his temple, so that's why we're here on this day, and we'll go ahead and live our life the way we want the rest of the time. 
missing out on the fact that it wasn't the temple that was important to the Lord. It was the relationship with his people that was important. And so Jeremiah preaches what is known as the temple sermon, uh, but that's what he's, why he's saying this over and over again, the temple of the Lord. He's repeating what the people are saying because they walk in, we're safe because here's the temple, and we're here in the temple, and it's in the center of our community. God would never destroy it. And they walk back out again and live their lives the way they want to. Uh, you have crisis in Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah finally wants to throw in the towel. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the prophecy against Judah and the nations. Uh, Judah is the only tribe that's really left by the time Jeremiah is working. Conflicts with leadership of Judah, uh, Jeremiah 26 to 29. So you've got some of the different kings that he goes in and confronts and talks to. And, and you've got some scribes that work for the king that really don't like him. Uh, Pasher being one of them and some others that really despise Jeremiah. You got all that. Okay, uh, the new covenant and hope. This is one of the richest passages because it's quoted in the book of Hebrews, but it talks about the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant under Moses uh, that could not sanctify a person because it worked from the outside in, whereas this new covenant would actually provide forgiveness of sin and work from the inside out. There would be a new heart given to them, a softening of their heart, uh, as you find. And so you have this new covenant that is given in the middle of Jeremiah, along with uh, many other prophecies. Uh, 34 through 36 has these personal counts, uh, uh, personal encounters with obedience and disobedience. You have a group of people known as the Rechabites, who that for a hundred or almost a thousand years uh, by this time had uh, followed a command of their father. It wasn't necessarily a moral command or anything like this. It was just a command. You're not going to do something. And they followed it for over a thousand years. And Jeremiah comes to the people of Israel and he goes, you've got a God who's been your God for thousands of years. And he is uh, giving you commands that are moral and right and good for you to follow. And you won't follow a single one of them, but you have this group of people who just followed one command of their dad all these years. They've been faithful, you've been unfaithful. And then he goes into the king, and the king, who gets a new message from God, doesn't like what he hears, Eliakim, and so he takes the the message as he gets it, tears it into little shreds, and puts it in the fire to warm himself, because that's what he thought of God's message. And so the fall of Jerusalem, the flight to Egypt, uh, this account, chapters 37 to 45, Jeremiah is a part of this. Uh, He is allowed to stay in Jerusalem, problem is, is the people, even though they've been told by Jeremiah, stay in Jerusalem, you'll be okay. They decide that they're going to, well, murder off the governor that is there and then flee to Egypt. Uh, And that's where Jeremiah ultimately ends his life, uh, spending time in Egypt, being carried there because he didn't want to go there, but the people took him with. And then the prophecies against foreign nations. So you have those arrangements there uh, as far as the book. So let's get into a couple of these paragraphs because they're, they're lengthy, but yet they give you, you know, the total sum of what you need if you go reading through this book that will help you out. Understand Jeremiah. Okay, the book of Jeremiah is a lengthy book. Okay, that's why it's called a major prophet. Uh, it's a lengthy book that's daunting for several reasons. It is longer than any of the prophets due to the amount of words. Okay, Isaiah is 66 chapters. 
Jeremiah, you just saw, it was 52. But it's longer. Okay, that, that's what some people don't realize. And so there's a lot of words. Uh, that shouldn't be an apostrophe there. Bad grammar. Uh, its message is filled with suffering and judgment. Jeremiah is not one to glory in the judgment, but is known as the weeping prophet. Okay, he, he is uh, pictured weeping over Jerusalem. Uh, about uh, 500 years later, you have Jesus weeping over Jerusalem as he knows what the destruction is going to be of that city. Uh, he's a sorrowful prophet. book is hard at times to follow because parts of it are not in chronological order. Uh, the book's message puts events together to illustrate God's point of why judgment needs to take place and why these people need a new covenant to get a new heart. Jeremiah was a priest who lived in a town called Anathoth, uh, a few miles from Jerusalem. Okay, he's uh, a town that they don't even know where it exists today, but as far as we can tell is the geography, uh, that it's just a, you know, a mile to three mile walk to Jerusalem from where he grew up, so he's not far away from it. Uh, he's a priest. And so the first chapter gives the commissioning of Jeremiah. He has given an overview of the messages he will preach throughout the years. There's a vision of the almond tree in which he understands that God is awake to the sins of Judah. The almond tree was the first one to bloom in the, the nation of Israel, very large white buds on it, uh, and it was really the announcement that uh, spring was coming in their culture. Uh, and so he uses that to say God's awake to the sins of Judah, and then the vision of the boiling pot. Uh, he sees a pot that is pushed over from the north, and it's pouring its contents towards the south. And you say, what is that representing? Well, Babylon's going to come out of the north and pour out its you know, contents of judgment on the nation of Israel. And so these two commissioning pictures are there as part of Jeremiah's commissioning time. Throughout the book, the emphasis is, uh, throughout the book, the emphasis in the book is that the Lord is speaking, capital L-O-R-D, uh, and his words need to be heard. The name the Lord, which is Jehovah, or as the Jews would, you know, get close to saying was Yahweh, uh, but Jehovah, uh, is used by Jeremiah more than any other book. He's always talking about Jehovah, and you go, why is he using that name? Because that's the name of relationship. God said, this is the name you can call on me by. Uh, this is the personal name for you as a nation. I am your God. I am giving you this name, reminding you of all I've done for you, bringing you out of Egypt and all the things that you've had at this point. You can call upon me by using this name because it's the term of relationship. And Jeremiah's just got this throughout his book because it's not that God is far and distant. No, he is wanting this relationship more than anything else. And also you have terms for word, speak, saith, declared, are used hundreds of times in this book. You know, Thus saith the Lord, the Lord is speaking, the Lord has this word, the Lord is, and, and it's just over and over again, the call to people, hear what the Lord has to say. Uh, he's not a God that's not communicating. He is communicating. What Jeremiah finds after the death of Josiah, which Josiah was a good king. He dies in 609 because he decides he wants to involve himself in the politics of his world, and he was told not to do it. Uh, he was a good king, but he ended up getting killed in battle. 
and he was the last real good king of Israel, Jeremiah is confronted by multiple leaders who do not want to hear his message. In fact, it seems from his account that Jeremiah only has two friends, Baruch the scribe and Ebed-Melech, which uh, is a term uh, servant of the king, is what his name means, Uh, may have not been his name, but that's how we know him, Ebed-Melech that rescues him from a pit. You know, he gets to a point where one of the leaders doesn't like him and says, okay, uh, let's throw him in this pit, which is probably more like a cistern where you had water collected, but then you got to a point where the water disappeared and all the silt would be in the bottom of it, uh, and he is, you know, drowning in the, the quicksand almost as you, at the bottom of this, and uh, ebed Melech rescues him. He goes to the king and says, can we rescue him? And, and the king goes, yeah, okay, go ahead and rescue him after he was trying to kill him off. Uh, But those are the only two people that you see in the whole book that are favorable to him. Family doesn't like him. You read through 11 through 20, his family's trying to assassinate him, uh, trying to kill him, uh, just uh, all sorts of things. Uh, The chief of the temple, Pasher, has Jeremiah beat and put in stocks. Eliakim, the king, uses the message of Jeremiah to fuel his his warming fire. And... um, yeah, uh, Jeremiah wasn't there for that. He had somebody else read it because he was persona non grata in the, the, uh, the palace at the time. And when the message came, the king allowed Baruch to read it, but then showed his disdain for it. Jeremiah is discouraged. I mean, his ministry is not easy. He's told not to marry. Don't do it. You know, you'll, you'll have to weep over somebody that you know personally. Uh, don't get married. Uh, he's told not to God by uh, not to marry, not to go to funerals for relatives or to parties. Okay, don't enjoy being with all these people and have a good time with them because uh, many of them are going to die, carried off to captivity, uh, end in misery. So don't get to know them too well. Um, kind of lonely. Jeremiah, throughout the early chapters, confesses his weariness and frailty. He finally goes, uh, in chapter 20, uh, he just kind of goes, I quit. I mean, that's what the length of it is, but he goes, I just quit. I'm done. Everything I do, I get clobbered for it. Uh, I get hated for it. Uh, It doesn't seem to change anything. So why do I keep doing this? And God goes, okay, I'm going to give you my word, and it's going to burn in you like a fire. And Jeremiah continues to preach because there's this fire of the message needing to be out, at least for these people to have the warning that they need. And so he can't quit. And so God's word is like a fire and he can't keep silent. World around Jeremiah is in turmoil. First Assyria and then Egypt uh, fall to Babylon. Judah's a pawn on the table of international politics. The king of Judah looked to alliances rather than to God. This is what Jeremiah has to do. He go, don't trust in the Assyrians. Don't trust in the Egyptians. Don't trust in the Babylonians. Okay, they're merely men. Very fickle individuals at that. Uh, the people are looking to idols to protect them. So they have the alliances with other nations. You trust in those. You go to these statues that you set up on your street corners and outside your gates and these type of things, and you offer sacrifices before you go out, hoping that that'll make your day go better as you go out in the community and all these things, and, and this type of thing going on all the time. Because of all this, God finally carries out his judgment on Jerusalem. 
it's made empty. I mean, this is what it means by being desolate. There's nobody there. You know, suddenly uh, the town is completely empty and the birds and the animals feel okay just wandering around. There's only a few times in my life where I've actually felt like that in the middle of a city. I had one time, uh, some of you remember this, 1993 or, no, 92, uh, where the Deep Tunnel Project punched a hole in the Chicago River and flooded a number of buildings downtown, and part of my job was to go into those buildings and clean out everything out of people's desks that was edible or could be uh, consumed or put on, you know, lipstick, anything like that. But the eeriness of walking into that building was all the computers were still on, papers were the way they were, and you walked in there, and other than you being in this massive building, everything going on, there was nothing going on in there. But you had this massive structure like that. I kind of felt that way last December when I parked in the Grant Park garage three days before Christmas, and it was empty. I could park anywhere. You know, I could have parked as far away as I wanted. I could have chosen, you know, sit next to a pole or, you know, anywhere, but it was empty. And you're just kind of going, this is really weird uh, and desolate. Well, that's what Jerusalem was like for almost 70 years. Empty. God emptied it out. Only a few were left behind. Those eventually run to Egypt, Jeremiah uh, is one of them. He gets carried away to Egypt, and Jerusalem just lies empty. And it's sad because this is the place that God chose to display his name. And the nation of Israel became a byword, a mockery to everybody uh, around that this is the nation that had that God as their God, and look at what their God could do. Now, it's going to be a testimony where God brings them out of a second captivity, he brings them out of Egypt, then he has to bring them out of the Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem, uh, and God begins to receive glory again amongst his people and amongst the other people. But, you know, sad uh, that this happens. People who are left do not listen to God's message through Jeremiah. They're caught up in intrigue and flee to Egypt. And so, uh, Gedaliah is the governor who gets assassinated, and some of these other characters and uh, just a sad time. I, you know, I, I read Jeremiah, and I read it, and it's a great personal book. It's one of the most personal of all the prophets. You don't get many stories in Isaiah's life. He does show up and talk to Hezekiah and a few things like that. And Ezekiel talks about some of the illustrations he has to do, you're going to find out, are pretty embarrassing, and, and uh, you know, he just kind of lays those out. But Jeremiah's whole book is just, you know, here he's preaching, and you hear his message, and then you see the people's reaction, and the whole book is like that. Um, not easy for this servant of God. However, message Jeremiah is not a message devoid of hope. Okay? You know, you could get discouraged by it, but in the middle of it, you have some of the highest points in the Old Testament of hope and confidence that God's going to do something. So in the midst of despair and sorrow, uh, as it is in any of our lives where there's the greatest sorrow and the, the, the events of life that just kind of crush us, where we see the highest points where we see God and Him doing something. It's, you know, those two things going on. So it is for Jeremiah. The message of hope goes beyond the freeing from other nations, but the freeing from the bondage of sin. 
not only will God deliver the nation of Israel out of the captivity they're about to go into, but God is giving them something far more important, not temporary, that you get freedom in this life. No, you have freedom for the next life. And that's freedom from sin. Uh, Chapters 30 to 33 gives uh, Israel a message that they will return to the land as part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. He says, you're going to come back to this land and understand this. This is not by accident. I promised this land to Abraham. And you're going to see that I'm going to keep my promise. But in the midst of seeing that, Jeremiah gives how long the captivity will last, uh, chapters 29, 10 through 14. Israel will also eventually have a king from the line of David as God promises in a covenant in chapters 33, 15 through 18. He goes back to the Davidic covenant that he made some seven, or excuse me, uh, 500 years before, and he says, I promised David a king that would rule forever. And what you're going to see is all the kings of David's line are going to be carried off, hooks in their nose, some of them, some of them executed. And you're going to see all of this and think, well, that's the end of that line. God goes, no. I kept a promise with David that there would be someone who would rule on the throne of Israel forever and ever out of his line, out of his physical line. And so Jeremiah reiterates that promise. So you think that everything's done, Jerusalem's empty, the people are gone, the dynasty of David's line seems to be completely cut off. God goes, no. I promise that all these things will happen. But ultimately, and I want us to turn to this one, Jeremiah 31. Verse 31 through 34. The statement is made, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive, and this is the important part, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Think about this. How is that even possible? Because you have a nation of people that are deserving of God's judgment right now and eternally. How are they going to get their sins paid for? You say, oh, by giving thousands of sacrifices. No. It's going to come through the person that Isaiah talked about, this one who was going to be stricken, smitten of God. And this individual who was going to do that, that he was going to provide the forgiveness for sins. But this is a new covenant. Now, we know this, and we kind of look back on this and go, oh yeah, well, think about our Bible. It's set as the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Okay, you know another way to say Old Testament and New Testament? Old Covenant, New Covenant. And for all of us, we go, oh yeah, well you get to the New Testament, Jesus Christ dies and we all receive forgiveness of sins and that's the New Covenant for us and it's wonderful, Gentiles and Jews can be saved. And you're going, well wait a second, that's not what the New Covenant is all about. We're just individuals right now that are enjoying the blessings of, you know, the extra blessings because there's going to come a day that God is going to take the nation of Israel and they are going to be saved. As in a day, you read the prophecies of the Old Testament and this is what it declares. They'll look on him who they pierced. And in a day they will be saved and this nation of people who you are to take a a survey of them today hate Jesus Christ. In some cases they deny that there's a God probably the largest portion of the population uh, in the world of people that are atheists are Jews. You know why? Because of the Holocaust. But one day, these people will suddenly call upon the name of the Lord and shall be saved, and it's going to be the whole nation, and they're going to have a transformation that takes place on the inside We go, well, we know what that's like. It's the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in us. Yeah, okay, that's the benefits we're enjoying right now, but he's gonna do this for the nation. A group of people like this that are cutting up the word of God and worshiping idols and all of this type of thing, a nation like that, he's actually one day going to make them a part of a new covenant. And the people aren't gonna have to have the law written in stone No, because the law will be written in their heart because God will be dwelling in them and have changed their heart. We enjoy the benefits as Gentiles that, okay, God died on the cross to forgive sins, but his whole goal in the new covenant is not the rescue of us. It's actually the rescue of his specific people, the nation of Israel, and seeing them saved after you've spent a whole book looking at them run. God can change a rebellious nation in a day. And so Jeremiah has that at the core of his uh, book, uh, and uh, we experience it today. The covenant was originally made with the nation of Israel as one that the whole world can enjoy because the shed blood of Jesus makes this possible, but we enjoy the side benefits. Um, Some key passages, and I'm just going to mark these out here uh, for you. Um, Jeremiah 17, 9, if you don't know that one. But you know what that verse is? Heart is deceitful above th- all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, good verse to just remind yourself of because that's not a verse for everyone else. It's a verse for yourself. Um, good verse. Uh, Jeremiah 18.6, Jeremiah 29, 31 and 31 uh, are just going through some of those new covenant promises that God's going to do certain things in the future uh, for that. And that one there. And then I have a personal favorite. It's not necessarily a highlight when you look through the book, but uh, it's one that uh, I remember memorizing as a kid years ago. Baruch who was the scribe for Jeremiah. Jeremiah 45, um, 
it seems like he might have been seeking glory because he's walking into the presence of kings and talking with them and and he's giving them messages that the king's not going to like, but there seems to be some element that he's thinking, I get to go into the presence of kings. And Jeremiah simply has to say to him in, in chapter 45 and verse 5, and seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. For behold, I will bring upon uh, evil upon all flesh, saith the Lord, but thy life will I give to thee for a prey or a prize in all the places whither thou goest. He just simply says this, you're looking for great things, just be happy that you are going to survive this, that you have your life as a prize, uh, not that you get to parade around in the presence of kings and that. Be humble because you don't deserve even the rescue I'm going to give you. And so, seekest thou great things for thyself, seek them not. That's Jeremiah 45, 5. So that's a bonus, bonus verse out of there. So a lot of reading in a book like this, it's not one that you can quickly go through. Uh, and when you do read through it, it's just kind of harder to go through. But there's enough stories to keep you going as you read through it. Uh, and it's a good book. Reflects what the attitude of Christ is like towards his people. Lord, we thank you. Uh, for this book. May we read it uh, with your heart and your mind, but also delighting in the fact that in the midst of uh, a nation and a group of people that reject you all the time, that there is hope that your new covenant uh, blessings right now can transform individuals uh, by your shed blood of your son. And uh, so we thank you for the message of hope in the midst of uh, disaster. And uh, we pray that uh, we would be people that would reflect uh, that hope to a a generation of people that uh, are going the opposite direction of where you would have them going. We love you, Lord. Thank you for first loving us, and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.